Good morning. New life, fam, din din. Food, new life, fam, food slam. I have you know I voted against those, just for the record. Um, most people, I think, probably refer to it as like potluck. Is that right? Anybody here refer to it as a covered dish? Three hands, four hands. Okay. So I think that's kind of fitting, but I, I was voted against. So it is what it is. Well, we're so glad that you're here this morning. Uh, we are continuing our study in the book of Ephesians, and we have come to chapter 5. And today I have a monumental task of getting through 21 verses. So we're going to try to do that, and hopefully my arm isn't going to get tired as I'm holding this microphone, but I'm so excited that you're here, and I believe God wants to speak to us this morning. I'll warn you in advance, it's not an easy message uh, to hear. It wasn't an easy message to prepare for, and I'm sure it's not going to be an easy message for me to preach, but I believe God wants to speak to us. And uh, even if what we learned this morning at this moment in time does not strike you in the heart um, as deeply as it could, it might in the future. And, and we need to keep these words in mind. But before we go there, um, this morning I was thinking about the very first verse that we're going to be looking at, and that kind of actually brought to my remembrance something from my, my childhood. But have you ever noticed how children uh, love to imitate their parents? I don't know if you've ever noticed that before, but it, as I was reading this very first verse, I was thinking about myself growing up, and there were many occasions where I endeavored to imitate my dad, my father. And I remember, I don't know how old I was, I had to be pretty young, but I remember uh, one Christmas I had received a toy car dash. I don't know if anybody ever else got one of those, but I mean, it, it, it looked like a miniature inside of the car with the steering wheel, you know, all of the odometer, or the, the, the speedometer there and gauges, there was even a glove compartment and a shift. And I remember taking that with us on the road, and Dad would be driving, and I would be in the back seat kind of you know, doing this all over the place. I mean, if, it was, if that thing was hooked up to our wheels, we would have been in a ditch easily because Dad might be turning left, and I'd be turning right and everything else. But, but it was, I just thought it was so cool that he was able to drive, and that was like me trying to imitate him. I um, also remember uh, the days of early shaving, when uh, my dad used to use Barbasol. Anybody still use Barbasol? Okay, a few of you. So I would get it out, man. I would lather up, and then I would get my toy razor out, and, uh, and, and I would pretend to shave because I thought that was so cool. You know, I'm being like my dad. As I got a little bit older, um, my mom used to make fun of me because she would notice the growth on my face, and she would refer to it as peach fuzz. And then she, she would say things like, do you, do you want me to get some milk and have the cat lick it off? And uh, I was insulted by that. But um, eventually, you know, I, I actually graduated to the real thing. And again, you know, 
how do you do this? I never went to a grocery store to, to buy a razor. I'm just going to use Dad's. Well, Dad had one of those old school razors. You know, the kind where you, you unscrew it from the bottom and the thing kind of opens up? And you put a razor blade right there in the middle of it. Then you tighten it down. I still have a scar to this day from the razor blade that sliced my finger. Um, and so the, the, that was me trying to imitate my dad. My kids have tried to imitate me as well. Here, here's a picture of my girls imitating me. Yeah, not too flattering. So that's what they really think. Okay, um, here's a picture of my son doing what I did when I was a kid. Now, you can't see it, but that's, uh, that's, that's an electric, fake electric razor that he's shaving with there. And, uh, but, but that's not it. I mean, it, it got worse. That was... That was him imitating me waking up in the morning, wearing my wrap, scratching my back, and combing my hair. I didn't realize I was that, that talented. I could do both at the same time. So, oh, and yawning, too. So, um, so I'm sure that you guys uh, remember uh, you, know, you imitating your parents, your kids imitating yourself. Um, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, we read, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So it's natural for children to want to imitate their parents. And the same is true for us as beloved children of God. We should want to imitate our heavenly father. And what's interesting is this is the only place in the New Testament where we're actually commanded to imitate God. You would think, that, wow, really? That's the only place? Yeah. Now, Paul mentions elsewhere many times, you know, that we should imitate him as he imitates Christ. He even tells the churches that the churches ought to imitate each other. But this is the only place where we have an explicit command to imitate God. And the word that's translated imitate, imitators here, is mimates. And that is a word from which we get the word mimic. And you guys know what it means to mimic. It's a person who copies the words or the behavior of another person. Now, this command to imitate God is actually fleshed out in three admonitions here in chapter 5 and within the first 21 verses. And we're going to look at it because those admonitions are simply that we are to walk in love, in light, and in wisdom. Now, what's really important to, to say on the front end of this is that as we read this, we are not endeavoring to become someone we are currently not. We actually are to become who we are. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together this morning and for your word. Lord, I pray that the truths that are contained in this passage uh, would just jump off the page, jump off the screen, that it, it would, in fact, penetrate our hearts. And Lord, I pray that we would be responsive to your word, that we would be quick to obey. Lord, this morning, where we need conviction, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would bring it. Where we need to be encouraged, I pray that you would encourage us. 
And as always, we pray that you would conform us to the image of our Savior. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. We are to become who we are. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to chapter 5. If not, I'll have the text on the screen. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. We're going to start again at verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So the first admonition that Paul gives us here is that we are to walk in love. We are to walk in love as Christ loved us and offered up himself for us as a fragrant offering. And sacrifice to God. And if you know anything about Old Testament sacrificial system, you know that there were many. There was the burnt offering, and you had the altar of incense, and and there there was something about the aroma, the the incense going up to God, and that God accepted it. It was considered a fragrant offering. But the question we have to ask ourselves is: how do we do this? How do we walk in love? Well, I think it begins first by being sure that we have been born again. Because it's one thing to, to read a command that says walk in love, and it's another thing to do it. And we need the power of God in our lives to be able to achieve this. We can't do this on our own. We, we need this heart of stone to become a heart of flesh. We need to be regenerated by the Spirit of God. We need God to come into our life and transform us and make us into what we had always wanted to be or desired to be and what we were created to be. We have to be born again. Second. Even after you come to faith in Christ, we have to meditate on the sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf daily. We can't afford to be haphazard with it. We can't afford to treat it trivially or to think about it on special occasions or just on Sunday mornings. We need to be cognizant of the fact that Christ died for us while we were still enemies, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us because he loved us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So we need to think about what God has done. If we are to walk in love, if we are to imitate God, then just as my kids are watching me, we need to watch God. We need to watch Christ. We need to look at him and see how did he love us so that we might be able to imitate him. And thirdly, not rock and science here, we're simply to do it. We're simply to obey. We are to follow Christ's example of selfless love and as we pour out our lives for others, we too will become a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So that's the first admonition 
that Paul gives us. The second admonition is that we are to walk as children of light. Now, this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning, and this is where we're going to be seriously challenged by God's word. In verses 3 through 14, Paul uses the themes of darkness and light to contrast the life of those who are lost with those who are redeemed. And Paul mentions several sins to describe those living in darkness. Look at verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. We're going to camp here just for a little bit. The, the word sexual immorality come from a Greek word, pornea. And this word is a very broad word that describes any kind of sexual immorality, whether it be fornication, adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, anything else that you can think of. It is a wide-ranging word that encapsulates everything that would be considered sexually immoral. Now, sexual sin is primarily a worship problem. Paul doesn't explicitly say that it is idolatry like he does with greed or covetousness, but that's what it is. Because when a person is sexually immoral, or for that matter, when he's engaged or she's engaged in lustful thinking of a sexual nature, what, what is happening is that we're creating idols out of created beings, out of other people. We are worshiping the body the created body of another, as well as ourselves, by pursuing pleasure and self-gratification more than we're pursuing God. We're saying, this is what I want. This is what I want to pursue. Now, let me make it real clear. God is not against sex. God created sex. And in the proper context, it's wonderful God wants the best for us. But when we take it out of its context, it becomes putrid. I have often used the illustration of, of taking a beautiful plant that is in a pot and it's sitting up on a shelf somewhere. And it adds to the decor of the room and it looks beautiful. It looks great. But you take that same plant and you pick it up and you smash it to the ground. And suddenly, it doesn't do for you what it once did sitting up there on the shelf. But it's the same plant. It's the same soil. It's, it's the same container. It it's just wasn't designed to be there on the floor. Spread out all over the place. That's why God is opposed to to sexual immorality. 
The other word that Paul uses here is impurity. And this is something that is considered dirty or unclean. It's a broad term, once again, that describes any kind of immorality, but especially that of sexual sins. And then he mentions covetousness or greed. This is the insatiable desire for more. And again, it's a worship problem. Because we want something else or someone else. We desire something more than we desire God. And it puts self and things on the throne of our life. Now, all of these things, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, listen to what Paul says, must not even be named among you. Must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. I like how the NIV 84 reads. It says, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. Not a hint of it. Not an inkling of it. Why? It's because that's not who we are. We were darkness. Now we are light. A while back, I remember reading a story. Uh, I believe it's, it's a historical record, a true story of a time when the conqueror, Alexander the Great, had an encounter with a deserter from his army. The deserter was found. He was brought before him. And Alexander the Great asked the young man, what is your name? To which the man mumbled and could not be heard. Alexander asked again, I will ask you again, what is your name? To which the man replied, my name is Alexander, sir. And Alexander the Great said something that has been recorded in different ways, but the essence of which was this. Young man, you either renounce your cowardice or you renounce your name. You see, Alexander the Great did not want somebody in his army who shared his name acting like a coward. Folks, we bear the name of Christ. When we look at the way we live our lives, is it possible that Jesus might say to us, you either change your behavior or you change your name. Verse 4 tells us, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. And here we see that there are three aspects of speech that Paul is talking about. The first is that of filthiness. Filthiness. That, that word has always had a real negative of vibe to it for me, uh, largely because I remember how often my mom used to come into my room and say something like, this place is filthy. 
You live in a pigsty, you know? And it's so, so when I hear the word filthy, I, I think of my room. I, I think about things that might have been living underneath all the clothes that were on the floor. I, but, but it really speaks to that which is improper or indecent. It is to act shamefully or in an, in an obscene manner. And it carries the idea of deformity. That it's, it's, an, its appearance should not be that way. And somehow it is deformed. It is warped speech and disgraceful behavior. Paul then talks about that there should be no foolish talk or silly talk. Now, this is an interesting word. It's a unique word, morologia, and it comes from two Greek words. The first one is moros. Guess what word we get from that? Moron. Okay? So moron. The second word, legos, it, it's, it, if you were to spell it out, it's like legos, but it's legos. It means silly, dull, or stupid. So this word, morologia, is stupid, careless, thoughtless, impulsive speech like that of a drunkard. Have you ever seen a drunkard? Somebody talk, somebody who's inebriated. Just blah, 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 blah. Just talk, talk. Stupid things come out of their mouth. Don't even make sense. Sound like a moron. That's what he's talking about here. There should be no foolish or silly talk. But then he mentions coarse joking or coarse jesting. This, again, is speech that is considered obscene or degrading. I like to refer to it as locker room talk. For those of you that know what it's like to be in a locker room with a bunch of guys, you hear a lot of, a lot of bad stuff in the locker room. It's dirty. It's vulgar speech. But it's also often used under the guise of humor and wit. Paul tells us this kind of speech is out of place. Meaning it is not in keeping with who we are. God's children should never talk like this. There's no excuse for it. And I have a really hard time even listening to it on the TV. And more often than not, when I hear it, I'm changing the channel or turning it off. But I can tell you, even in my own life, I've become desensitized to foul language, to inappropriate speech. And, and, and you've got to wonder, you've, you, you've got to wonder if, if we are being entertained by the things that God hates, then we've got a heart problem. We have a serious heart problem. If we can be entertained by the things that God despises and hates. There is no excuse. It is ugly. It is shameful. It is disgraceful. It is not fitting for a kid's, for a king's kid. Instead, Paul says, we ought to give thanks. You see, thanksgiving is a form of speech that is becoming children of God. 
And we have so much to be thankful for. If we took the time to give thanks to God for all the things that he has done for us, we wouldn't have time to even consider speaking in a way that is degrading or obscene. Now, Paul adds force to his argument here by telling us what is ultimately at stake. And we need to hear this. Look with me, if you would, at verse 5. Oop, go back. There we go. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, he has or has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Did you hear that? You may be sure of this. Sure of this. Of what? Everyone, underscore the word, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or greedy or covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. These these people are not merely losing out on the blessings of heaven. They're losing out on heaven itself. Paul says, you may be sure of this. I don't think we are. I don't think many of us really are. How else do you explain the behavior of so many professing Christians who live like this? There are people who sit in worship services like this every Sunday who are sexually immoral, impure, greedy, or covetous. And by the way, these aren't the only sins. These are the, these are the ones that Paul is nailing. And, and he's saying that, hey, if this describes you, then you need to know, you need to be sure of that you have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. That changes things. That ought to wake us up. That ought to put the fear of God in many of us. And this is, this is not me. This is God's word. And this isn't the only place that we read this in Scripture. I'll give you just one example. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul writes, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You can't get any clearer than that. Now, Listen, I'm not saying that Christians can't commit these kinds of sins. 
They can. We, we still deal with the flesh. We still live in a fallen world. But if you truly belong to Christ, you will not persist in these things. You can't. John tells us in his first epistle, he says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, there, there will always be people who will try to justify their behavior, even spiritualize it, even make it sound holy. And boy, there's a whole slew of things I could share. I just jotted down a, a few here, like um, people who say, well, it's, it's not sin. We love each other. After all, God is love. Oh, how about this, that verse, that doesn't apply to us today. And then they go on to explain why it doesn't apply to us today. Or you can't take everything literally. Or I was born this way. Or I, I can't help myself. That's just the way that I am. That's just my personality. That's just the way that I was raised. After all, I'm only human. I like this one. Yeah, but once saved, always saved. Or how about this one? God understands. Said with much emotion and heartfelt, you know, sincerity. God understands. Yeah, he understands. He understands that's a load of malarkey. God will not be mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, so shall he also reap. Now, in Paul's day, there was a false teaching called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was, was a Greek philosophy. It was basically made up of a combination of physical, uh, excuse me, uh, philosophical elements. One was dualism. One was mysticism. Dualism separated reality into the physical or material world, which was bad, and the spiritual or immaterial world that was good. And, and so the mystics kind of came in and basically said, no, you're not saved by grace through faith in Christ. You are saved by acquiring some special knowledge. And when you combine these two, it actually led to two approaches to life. One was um, asceticism. If, if the physical world is evil and the spiritual realm is good, then what we need to do is we need to treat this body harshly. We need to subjugate it. We need to be able to deal with it ruthlessly because it's evil. And then on the other side of the coin, you had licentiousness. Well, wow, if the body, the flesh... The material world is evil. The thing is spiritual. It's good. And never the two shall meet. Then it doesn't really matter what we do in the physical realm. So we're just going to live our life the way we want and realize, you know, we can still be spiritual and still sin all we want. In verse 6, Paul warns us not to be deceived by fine sophistry. Look at verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. God's word is clear. 
If you are sexually immoral, impure, covetous, uh, or, or greedy, or an idolater, you, one day, one day, you will experience the wrath of God. And because God's wrath is so sure, we are not to be partakers with them in this type of behavior. And Paul reminds them that this is not who you are. He brings them back to their identity in Christ. He wants them to live out of their true identity. They, they used to be this way. They're not that way anymore. Look at verse 8. We are making progress through this, by the way. For at one time, at one time, you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. And as I was preparing for this message, I wanted to actually share with you something that I saw on TV the other day, something that my wife alerted me to, a commercial. And, and as I was thinking about what I would say and how I would say it, verse 12 just jumped off the page. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. And I thought for a moment, well, that, that applies to what I was going to do. Because I was going to share with you something that was evil, something that was wrong, something that I saw that ought not be, and I wanted you to be alert to it, but, but then I thought about this verse, and it's, it's shameful to even mention it, and then I began to plumb the depths of it a little bit more, and I, and I thought, you know what, in sharing it, I would inadvertently be putting a thought in your mind that you don't need to have in your mind. We need to be careful, even talking about evil with other people that we don't put a stumbling block in front of them. Now, notice what Paul says in verse 8. He says, at one time, you were darkness. <laughs> and he didn't say that at one time, you used to walk in darkness, although that would be true. He says, you were darkness. You were darkness. But now, what does it say? You are light. You are light in the Lord. We have a new identity. God is light and we are his children. Therefore, we are to walk as children of the light. Again, it's not that we strive to become something that we're not. We are to become who we really are. We are light in the Lord. So how do you exactly walk as children of light? Well, I think Paul gives us a few things here. First, we, we do it by not joining those in darkness. Verse 7 says, do not become partakers with them. Verse 11 says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says this. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. So we're going to have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. That's one way that we, we live as light. We just refrain from that. The second is we, we, be, we become who we really are. We are children of light, light in the Lord. We reflect the light of Christ as we do good works, as we live righteously, and as we speak truthfully. It's all in all goodness, all rightness and righteousness and truth. Now, as I said earlier, most children want to please their parents. I wanted to please my dad. Found it difficult, but I wanted to do that. We should want to please our Heavenly Father. That should be our greatest desire, to be pleasing to Dad. And this is not as difficult as it may seem. Read the book. You want to know how to be pleasing to God? It's in here. He has told us how to please him. And even here, just in this passage, you want to know how to please God? Ask yourself, is what you are doing good, right, and true? That's a good, good test. We also walk as children of the light by exposing the darkness around us. So this takes these first two things a step further. Not only are we not to partake in, in the, the fruitless deeds of darkness, but we are to expose them. This involves several things. It involves preaching the gospel, speaking against injustice, declaring the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. But that's not all. I love what Matthew Henry, um, the great commentator, said this. He said, we must witness against the sin of others and endeavor to convince them of their sinfulness in our words, but especially by the holiness of our lives. I have found that when people know you love Jesus, all you have to do is walk into the room and suddenly the conversation changes or stops altogether. People, people, no, there, there's something about the Spirit of God living in a person when that person enters into a room filled with darkness where there's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of things happening, that all of a sudden people feel really uncomfortable. Our very presence in the world helps to dispel darkness. So we illuminate darkness with our words and with our lives, but we also expose it with our works. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter five. He said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. Light, though, does not merely 
expose the darkness. It transforms it. That's where verse 13 comes in. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Paul seems to be saying that light not only reveals sin, but it has the power to transform darkness into light. I really like the the J.B. Phillips translation here. It reads like this. It says, For light is capable of showing up everything for what it really is. It is even possible, and then in parentheses, after all, it happened to you, for light to turn the thing it shines upon into light also. Now that last part in verse 14 may have actually been a part of an ancient hymn or a church confession. And you can almost envision it being said at the moment that a person has heard the gospel and being called to respond to the gospel. Or perhaps even at, at their baptism. So we are to walk in love. We are to walk as children of light. But there's a third admonition that Paul gives us, and that is we are to walk in wisdom. And I wish I had more time to really unpack these verses, but as it is, I'm, I'm just going to give you um, the, uh, the, the bird's eye view, the 50,000-foot view here. Look at verse 15. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Very quickly, we see here that we are to be careful that we don't walk as unwise, but as wise. And the idea here is that we are to inspect things very, very carefully, we, we are to be very cognizant and circumspect in our walk. We're not to be foolish as we go through life. We're to make the best use of our time. Literally, it means redeeming the time or buying back the time. Why? Because the days are evil. There's a payday coming. And, and even if we don't live to see it, Every single one of us have a limited amount of time on this earth. And we're spending it on something. And many of us are spending it on the wrong things. We need to redeem the time that we have in each day. We need to redeem the time that we have left on this earth. 
And then he says, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Again, God has revealed to this, this to us in his word. We spend so much time thinking, God, where do you want me to go to school when I graduate from high school? Where do you want me to go to college? And who do you want me to marry? And what kind of vocation should I have? We, that's when we think of God's will. That's what we're thinking about. God's will is more about who he wants you to be than what he wants you to do or where he wants you to live, or what school to go to. I'm not saying God doesn't have a will for those things too, but where God has so clearly spoken in Scripture, that's where we need to focus our attention. Now, in verse 18, we are given two commands. The first, do not get drunk with wine. Now, just because I've heard this before, this doesn't mean only wine, okay? So some of you, well, does it mean liquor's okay, hard liquor? You know, no, no, it doesn't. Be filled, here's the other command, be filled with the Spirit. Literally, be ye being filled. It is a present imperative. That means it happens continually. We are to continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I like what John MacArthur says about being filled with the Spirit here. It's different than what most of us would, would think. Because we, we tend to think about it in a mystical sort of way. But John MacArthur puts it this way. He says this. To be filled with the Spirit involves confession of sin, surrender of will, intellect, body, time, talent, possessions, and desires. It requires the death of selfishness in the slaying of self-will. When we die to self, the Lord fills us with his Holy Spirit. The filling of the Spirit is not an esoteric, mystical experience bestowed on the spiritually elite through some secret formula or other such means. It is simply taking the word of Christ, Scripture, in letting it indwell and infuse every part of our being. To be filled with God's spirit is to be filled with his word. And as we are filled with God's word, it controls our thinking and action, and we thereby become more under the spirit's control. Now, following this command, we're given five participles, which I see as evidences of being filled by the Spirit. They're not the only things, but five evidence here. They are addressing, singing, making, giving, and submitting. You see it? The picture here is of the body engaged in Spirit-led worship. When we gather for worship, think about this. When we gather for worship, we sing to the Lord but we also sing to one another. And we sing to ourselves. We are to address or speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And we don't know exactly what these things were. They might have been a reference to psalms in the Old Testament. There may have been some new hymns that they sung or spiritual songs, maybe akin to what we might call choruses. We're not really sure, but there were different types of song and singing. And they were to address one another or speak to one another in these ways, singing and making melody to the Lord with our hearts. 
Singing is an expression of great joy. That's one of the reasons why I love it when I can hear your voices. I don't come on Sunday morning to be entertained by the band. I don't want to come here on Sunday mornings and just listen to them. I want to sing to the Lord, and I want to sing loud, so I'm going to make sure my ears hear what I'm saying. But I also want to hear you, and I want you to hear me. Because when we do that, we are also ministering to one another. Did you realize that? We are ministering to one another. We are encouraging and we are instructing one another through song. All the more reason why the songs that we sing are sound theologically or should be sound theologically because we are instructing one another and we better be instructing one another well. Now verse 20 tells us, that we are also to give thanks to God always and for everything. And the final participle is that of submitting. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, there is harmony and peace in the body. And together, we willingly and mutually submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I want to close with this quotation again from John MacArthur. He said this, Because our heavenly Father is holy, we are to be holy. Because he is kind, we are to be kind. Because he is forgiving, we are to be forgiving. Because God in Christ humbled himself, we are to humble ourselves. Because God is love, as his beloved children, we are to walk in love. This ability is not natural, however. This is supernatural. Requiring a new nature and the continuous power of the Holy Spirit flowing through us by obedience to God's word. Folks, it's only natural for children to imitate their parents. Let us, therefore, imitate our Heavenly Father by walking in love, in light, and in wisdom. And let us become who we really are, beloved children of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our time here this morning. I thank you for your word and Lord, I'm, as I mentioned at the outset, um, this is a difficult passage. But Lord, it is your word, and you have given it to us for our instruction that we might be more like you. Lord God, I don't know where people are here this morning in their walk with you or in their journey towards Christ-likeness, but Father, I pray that you would deal with each of us individually that even as your Holy Spirit brings conviction, that you would be gentle with us, that you would help us to understand that you desire only the best for us. You desire that we have an inheritance, and we do have an inheritance because of what Christ has done for us. Help us to take to heart your word this morning. Help us to flesh it out in our lives. May we walk in love and in light and in wisdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.